The Emergency Medical Minute proudly presents award-winning author and journalist Sam Quinones as he shares his insights into his best-selling book, Dreamland, and how the addiction epidemic crossed borders, shattered families, and is a representation of America's loss of community. This is Dreamland in Denver. All right, then. How you guys doing? Everybody good? Great. Well, it's really nice to be back in Denver. I was here when I was writing the book. I've been here a few times. And still can't get over those mountains there and the snow. It's 85 degrees, I think, in Los Angeles right now. But Well, look, they asked me to spend some time talking about something connected to Denver. So I thought I would tell you guys a story, the story of how a guy, me, who never, ever wanted to write a word about healthcare. I only write, wanted to write about crime, basically, all my life. Gangs and murder and drug trafficking and all that stuff. And I didn't know what a Vicodin was about eight years ago. I came to write this book, and I'll just tell you, I wanted to tell you the story of how that kind of happened. Some of you may know I spent a lot of time in Mexico, it was a big part of it, but really kind of goes back, the, the roots of this go back a ways farther. I grew up in the 70s, I'm 59. I grew up with those great New York heroin movies, Serpico, French Connection. I thought all heroin was white powder for the longest time. Okay, I just thought every, all heroin was, I'd never seen anything else, right? Until I went to, got a great job my, my first kind of really fantastic job as a reporter covering the crime in the town of Stockton, California. A wonderful town, but it's also a very, very good place to be a crime reporter. Lots of it, never, you know, I learned a lot. It was my graduate school, basically. And crack was really what I was covering. Everything related to crack, right? But I learned a little bit about heroin, and it was at that moment that I saw black tar heroin for the first time. I'd never seen it before, didn't know what it was. And I learned some things about it. I learned, first of all, that in this hemisphere, it's only made in Mexico. I learned that it was every bit as, it was heroin, it was the same as white powder, just wasn't processed and purified as much. And I learned that during those years, as well as for years after, it did not cross the Mississippi River. It was a Western United States drug almost entirely. And I thought this was all very interesting. I really was covering other stuff, but this is what I brought with me out of that job. And I went down to Mexico to live. I lived down there for 10 years, covered all kinds of stuff. Drugs were really not part of it. Hey, there's a bunch of people up there. Hey, how you guys doing? I just saw you guys. Hey, oh my God. I thought it was all here. Wow. Sorry. So sorry not to acknowledge the folks up there. Um, <laughs> God, that was surreal. Um, look, all those faces are up there. My God. Anyway, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, oh God. Um, anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, I went down to, to Mexico to live it, and really what I covered, it was 94 to 2004, this medieval drug war had not kicked off yet. I really covered immigration, that's what I cared about. I wanted to write about this mass movement of people from one country to the other, biggest in the 20th century, I thought. 
And so I really covered that. But along the way, I learned some things that were relevant to this story. And one of them was that um, all over Mexico, I would find villages where everybody did the same job. Everybody in that town did the same job. I, in my first book, there's an entire story about a village where everybody in the village makes popsicles. They make popsicles, they start popsicle shops all over Mexico. It was one of the great business stories, uplifting business stories in Mexican history, really. Have all these people joining the middle class due to the popsicle. I went to this village five times. People all own stores all over Mexico. Now, if you go to this village, you recognize it because at this entrance of the village is an enormous two-story concrete popsicle. <laughs> it's true. Honoring the product that allowed them to join the middle class. Doesn't happen that often in Mexico. But all over Mexico, you would find the villages of construction workers. There's several villages outside Mexico City where everybody in the town, the women included, participate in heavy-duty pimping. The entire town of pimps, uh, the ugliest houses you've ever seen. It's like pimping just destroys your taste or something. And it, so uh, seriously, it's the ugliest house. Big mansions. There's a four-story pagoda in this town. That's a, built by a pimp. They pimp girls to uh, queens. Anyway, the reason for this is because in Mexico, there's not access to education that allows you to go from being peasant farmer to being a mechanical engineer. So you learn your job through whoever is around you, your uncle, your brother-in-law. Therefore, one person learns one job, and pretty soon everybody's doing that same job. The biggest example of that really is immigration. Once one person's landscaping in Dallas, pretty soon the whole half the town's landscaping uh, in Dallas. See this repeatedly all, all across Mexico. Fast forward a bunch of years, I leave Mexico, come back to the United States. They put me on a uh, I go to work for the LA Times. They put me on a, a, a team of reporters. Job it is to cover the Mexican drug war, which is now very hot and heavy. Part of that, one day, tooling around the internet, I was looking for a story. I come across a series of stories about people dying of overdoses to black tar heroin in Huntington, West Virginia. That just blew away several things that I thought I knew. First of all, I did not think West Virginia had a, was, you know, in those movies, there's no mention of West Virginia as being a heroin hotspot, number one. Number two, where I thought all black tar heroin was west of the Mississippi. What's it doing east of the Mississippi? And what's it doing in a state where there are no Mexicans? Right? Because well, I checked, West Virginia has the lowest percentage of foreign-born people of all the 50 states. So I call up Huntington PD. This was 2009. This had happened in 2007, this, this spate of deaths. I think they'd had one heroin overdose in a decade, and in six months they'd had a spate of 12 or 14. I call, they say, oh yeah, we remember that stuff. Bad. It was bad, it was a horrible time. We'd have lost more if the paramedics hadn't been so fast working. But you know, all that dope didn't come from here, it came from Columbus, Ohio. So I called Columbus DEA, and it's hit and miss with the DEA when you're a reporter. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's really not great. But I happened to encounter this wonderful DEA agent who, when I mentioned heroin, got very mad. Been 25 years on the job. He was a special agent uh, in charge of the office, been there 10 years, and he got outraged. You know, he said, when I came to this town, there was no Heroin. It was 1999 when I came here. There was no heroin in Columbus, Ohio. Then we began to see 
this weird thing that I'd never seen before. We began to see these Mexican guys tooling around town, dressed very modestly, old cars, eight, nine, 10 year old cars, Nissans, Toyotas, dressed down, selling heroin. At first we thought they were selling heroin by retail. Tenth of a grand dose in these little balloons. He said, at first, we thought they were individuals, just individual dealers or a couple of guys working together. Time went on, we began to realize that we were onto something much, much bigger than that, and that there was this entire uh, system that they worked in crews. These guys were selling heroin retail and delivering it like pizza. I, 25 years in this job, had never seen that. They drive around in these old cars, their mouths filled with little balloons of heroin, big jug of water right next to it. They swig it down. When the cops stop them, the cops can't tell that there's anything amiss. They're part of a crew, though. There's three or four drivers, and there's an operator standing by, right? Take the order. So the addict calls a number. Guy takes the order, dispatches one of the drivers, sends him on his way. And an international drug deal essentially is consummated at a Burger King parking lot or a Target parking lot, where have you. He said, I've never seen anything like that. They never use guns, he told me. That surprised me. I, my reading of the underworld is, you gain market share through guns. Al Capone, famous for it. Colombians, Bloods and Crips, everybody shoots the rivals, kills the rivals. That's how you get your market share most of the time. These guys don't use guns at all. They get paid a salary, never heard that before either. We arrest them, we arrest them, we arrest them, he said, and then a week later, they got new guys up. Reconstitute the cell within a week at most. This was sounding bizarre to me. I was amazed. And then he said something that changed my life. He said, the strangest thing is, they're all from the same town. And I remember I was sitting back at my computer like this, and I came bolted forward like that. And I said, which town was that? praying that he would not tell me, oh, that's confidential information. He gets on the horn with his case agent, case agent comes back on, he says, Tepic, Tepic, in the state of Nayarit. And right there, I knew he was wrong. Tepic is the capital city of the state of Nayarit. Nayarit, by the way, is south of Arizona on the Pacific coast. All down the way, you'll see it. Small state, I think the fifth smallest state in Mexico. Tepic, though, is the capital city, 350,000 people. And my conception of what this was, it had to be from a small town. So he wasn't lying to me, he just didn't have the right info on this one particular fact. He gave me a list of indictments that they'd done. I began to look these guys up. A lot of them were doing lengthy prison terms in federal prison. I wrote to them in Spanish. I think 20 guys first batch. Say, do you want to talk about your pizza delivery heroin system? <laughs> but that's how you do the job, you know? I, I love writing to guys in prison and going to prisons because you will learn volumes. And I waited. I wrote to 20 of these guys in Spanish. Hey, please, what do you think? Uh, blah, blah, blah. And I wait. A month passes, nothing happens. Finally, I'm ready to go on to another story when all of a sudden, bless his heart, one guy calls, doing 15 years in prison for being the operator in a cell in Columbus. And he says, yes, we are, we are all heroin traffickers and no, we are not from Tepic. We're from a small little town near Tepic, not far away, but it's definitely another area called Jalisco. 
Jalisco, if you know Mexico, is the name of a major state where Guadalajara is located. I'd been 10 years in Mexico, never heard of Jalisco Nayarit. Look it up as I'm talking with the guy, and he's, sure enough, there's Jalisco right there. They call it Jalisquillo, really. He tells me the story of this system. At first, I thought he was talking about a system where one town trafficked heroin to Columbus, Ohio. I thought that was a pretty good story. He blew my mind, though. He says, oh, no, no, no. This starts in San Fernando Valley, 1980s. Group of immigrants moved to kind of congregate from this town in the San Fernando Valley. A few families, not a lot of them, a few of the families figure out that it's a good business to sell black tar heroin. The, the opium poppy grows very nicely in the mountains of Nayarit. They learned how to cook it into heroin. They send it up north, and these guys would just chip off little pieces to the addicts who came up to them in the parks. They'd hang out in a park and chip it off. As time went on, this job uh, kind of more. First of all, more and more people got into it. More and more people saw, hey, that's a good business. Well, they couldn't kill each other because they're all from the same town. You start killing each other. Sometimes you're related. But whatever the case, you, you know where each other's mothers live. <laughs> right? So basically, they had to coexist with competition. They couldn't be like Al Capone. In time, they realized that as profits drop, well, what does a capitalist enterprise do when profits drop? It looks for new, more promising territory. That's what they began to do. At first, what they did was they go to cars. Cars were better. Cars expanded the potential clients. They, they began to develop the rudimentary system of the delivery system where, where they used, back then it was pagers and, and pay phones, of course. But it got them away from the cops. The cops were beginning to arrest lots of them. The Latino street gangs also had developed their own business model, which was to tax drug dealers in their territory. Still exists. This happens still all over Latino Los Angeles these days. These guys go to cars and they avoid having to pay taxes to the Latino gangs who happen to control the areas where they're selling. And in time, they expand. First with the San Fernando Valley, not just the parks, but all over the San Fernando Valley. Eventually, they go to San Diego, Pomona, Ontario. They go out to Portland, and it's during these years they, they come here to Denver. They come here, they expand based on something we all know very, very well which is cheap Mexican illegal labor. That's how they do it. I always wondered, as I got into this story, and I got very into this story, why it was that they would have people who wanted to work. I mean, after a while, they're arresting and arresting these guys who are spending lots of time in prison. Why would people back home raise their hand to come to the United States and drive heroin? And as I got into it, I began to realize a couple of things. First of all, it's important to understand in immigrant Mexico. Every town you go to, people who come here to work in landscaping and drywall hanging and meatpacking, whatever, every town you go to, the one thing you see all over Mexico is rebar. People send their money home to build houses. They build it piecemeal because they don't have loans to build it all at once. So over nine, 10 years, they'll build a room and then another room, finish up the first floor. Promising to build the second floor, they put rebar up. So that kind of ugly looking iron stuff that sticks out all across Mexico. Every village I'd ever been to where there was lots of immigration in the United States, I saw rebar, except in Jalisco, Nayarit. Went down there for five days. The first thing I realized was there was no rebar. 
I thought that was bizarre. But see, heroin had changed the social construct. And so people made enough money to build houses all at once. Once people saw a friend of theirs building a house all at once, everybody wanted to come north. People would start building houses with architectural design. They built it with wrought iron, with plate glass. One guy told me he remembers the first time a guy built a house in his village because it wasn't just Jalisco, it was little, little, even smaller villages nearby. The first house in the village where the guy had an automatic garage door opener, people would hang out in front of the door to watch it go up and down and up and down. It was a recruiting poster for heroin sales, that house. The other thing was, I began to realize, one of the main reasons they recruited labor was because this system that they had was a perfect system for transforming very, very cheap black tar heroin into stacks of gleaming blue Levi's 501 jeans. Levi's 501 jeans, I remember this very clearly when I was there in these, these years, in the mid-1990s, was the gold standard of rural Mexican menswear. It was a sign that you had arrived. They were very expensive, very well made, and they were in stark contrast with the very cheap jeans made in Mexico. You wanted to get a girl, walk around the plaza with Levi's 501 jeans. These guys realized that who they were dealing with was addicts who were fantastic shoplifters. So they began to order these, these guys. I want uh, five pairs, but in this size. And the addicts would go to JCPenney, back then, Sears, clean them out. And they would come and they'd give these guys a pair of jeans for a, a hit of heroin. And in time, these guys, big stacks of this stuff, they would take it home at Christmas or during the big fair that they had in the summer every year, and they would give them out like Santa Claus to their nephews, their uncles, their friends. And pretty soon, guys who remained behind, who'd gone to kindergarten with these same young men, saw them coming home, people flocking to them, enough money to buy all the beer in the plaza. All the girls want to talk to them. Levi's 501 jeans for everybody, perfume for the girls, etc. Pretty soon, all these guys are raising their hand to say, I'll go, I'll go drive heroin around whatever town you want me to for 500 bucks a week. I don't care, I'll do it. And so there was this system began to expand and the needing a labor pool, it used the young men who had no land, who were bakers, butchers, construction uh, workers, jobs that in Mexico lead nowhere. They lead nowhere. These guys began to understand that heroin was the way you changed your life. They began to raise their hand and soon huge numbers of them began to come uh, through the late 1990s as this system began to really expand very aggressively, and they came here. They came here early, but then they began to expand. Denver became one of the hubs from which they jumped off. A lot of people would come from this town. The profits would drop. They'd all go looking for new markets. From here, they colonized Salt Lake. The same family colonized Salt Lake, went to Boise. They went to Oklahoma City from here. They went to Omaha. They went to a variety of cities. Denver was like this big place where they had a large enough market that you could get started first, but then it was also near a whole bunch of other towns where you could, could set. And it was this system that they developed was very much like a Subway sandwiches. They were like franchises. They would sell them. They would sell the phone numbers and the lists and all that. It's also important to understand about these guys that they were selling heroin in the early, late 80s, early 90s, early, mid 90s, before before, as a country, we began minting new opiate addicts by the thousands, coast to coast. So every place they went was a static number. 
of people they had to sell to. They couldn't kill each other, so they had to learn to steal each other's clients in another way, and that's how they became master marketers. Discounting, two-for-one deals. If you buy from me Monday through Saturday, I'll give you a free one on, on Sunday. You get out of jail, I give you a little care package of five new free balloons. You bring me five new clients, I give you 50 free balloons. They knew how to market. They also knew how to brand. They had a little system through which they would use a straw, cut down into a piece of rolled out black tar heroin like a pancake. Boom, that straw would come away with about a tenth of a gram dose of black tar heroin. Every balloon. It was like when we buy a can of Pepsi-Cola, we know what's in that can. Every addict knew if they bought one of those balloons, they were buying tenth of a gram dose of very potent, increasingly more potent heroin. And if it wasn't there, they had a phone number that they could call. These guys expanded because also they did not look like major traffickers. They figured out as time went on that the public, the police, media looked at a successful bus as lots of dope, lots of money, lots of guns. And they designed an entire system in which none of that was apparent. They did just-in-time delivery like any modern corporation. I went to a bus here in... Frankly, I can't remember where it is now, but I went to a bust of a guy in, uh, in Denver. Small apartment, a few sticks of Walmart furniture, some Spanish-language porno and thriller movies, a small screen TV, and that was it. No parties, no bling, no nothing. They were sending all their money back home. They wanted to go back home and use it there. They did not care about it here. They looked like nobodies, and a lot of cops took a long time to figure out that they were not nobodies, that they were major factors in this. By the late 1990s, they have jumped the Mississippi River and they land, by pure, pure coincidence, they land in Columbus, Ohio. One guy, one guy does it, interviewed this guy like nine times, and then after a while, everybody comes. They come though at the very time when what Don was talking about, what others have talked about here, this movement to prescribe opioids as the main way of treating pain was gaining ground. That was the area in which Columbus was the northern limit of the ground zero, basically, where Purdue Pharma heavily, heavily marketed OxyContin. They come at the very moment when that is happening. I write about these guys not because they are the only heroin traffickers in Mexico. They are not. I write about these guys because First of all, they have an amazing system that blew me away. But I write about these guys because they are the first ones to figure out, because they're retailers close to the customer, to figure out the enormous market, to recognize and then systematically exploit the enormous market for heroin that overprescription of opioid painkillers represents. And they figured that out for the first time in Columbus, Ohio, jumping off from places like Denver, Portland, Salt Lake. Check this out. What's happening today, they figured out was gonna happen back in 1998, 99, 2020, 20 years ago. It's an amazing story, I think, that is about globalization, it's about drug addiction, it's about binational relations and our own addiction in this country. Today we are seeing people Transition from the pills, have been seeing this for a while, transition from pills that they can't afford, that they can't get anymore, what have you, to very, very cheap Mexican heroin. I'll end with a couple of important points, I think. One is, 
that the first time we saw that happen in America in a large, uh, people switch from pills to heroin and then die was in Huntington, West Virginia in the fall of 2007. I think that's the first place on record that I could find anyway where that began to happen. These guys, they were buying their dope from Jalisco and that was what was killing those guys in Huntington, West Virginia. In fact, dope from one guy. Today, of course, this is happening all across the country. I don't write about these guys because they're the only traffickers. I write about them, as I said, because they were the first ones to figure it out. But today, that market has exploded. Those guys from Jalisco, Nayarit, went to Columbus. They then went to Nashville, Memphis, Louisville, Lexington, Charlotte, Indianapolis, on and on, most of South Carolina, a huge swath of the Midwest and parts of the South. Today, though, what began with them being these kind of like pioneers, these uh, amazing entrepreneurs who took over the market and became the, really the major players in markets like Cincinnati and these other towns I mentioned. Those folks are now, they were the big fish in the small pond. Now that pond has exploded. It's a lake, it's an ocean. Now they're still working. They're still working here in Denver. They're just not the enormous factors that they once were because what they saw coming has arrived, an enormous explosion in both heroin use and now, of course, fentanyl that they saw coming back in 1998. Goes to show you, I think, that you can build walls between you and a bad neighborhood, but the bad neighborhood will come to you if you uh, aren't careful and if you invite it to come. I think that's the story of our time. I wrote a book about it because I thought that this was one of the most important stories of our time. And I continue to believe so. It's now all across the country. It's all across the country because we have invited it. And we're trying to deal with the consequences. And it looks like it will be with us for some time. Anyway, thank you all very much. Happy to answer your questions. Have a glass of water. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for uh, thanks for sitting down with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an unbelievable book. I, I thank you very much. Tremendously enjoyed it. It's such thank a you. deep book and kind of a rich book. I feel like it's so chock a block uh, full of stories and side, you know, yarns, you know, and mm-hmm. everywhere. And I, you know, I I think I heard you say once um, speaking to someone else that. Um, started as a crime story, but it really became an American story. Right. I didn't have time to address that, of course, and what I was talking about, but um, with the Jalisco boys, but yes, I thought I was writing the great American drug trafficking book, right? Just, you know, something so weird and fascinating, and I was able to get access to it, too, through prison and because I knew Mexico and because I spoke Spanish and all that, that I thought there probably weren't a whole lot of other reporters could write this story, honestly. But as time went on, I began to realize that actually this was a much, much larger story. This was not only a story about drug trafficking, because I had viewed it as a story at first about drug trafficking and pharmaceutical marketing, both of which were using more or less similar strategies to hawk their wares, heroin and pills. And I thought that was a mind-blowing story. I just couldn't get over that part of it. But then as I went along, the beauty of journalism is you leave your mind open 
You'll let the facts take you where they're going to take you, and you'll discover amazing things. And I love doing that. That's the beauty of the profession, I think, is to leave your mind open, let it take you, not bring any political or prejudices to the thing. Just let it go. And as time went on, I began to realize this was a story about who we are as a people, who we are as a country. I came to believe that it was our own isolation, our own destruction of community. I believe that we have, a big part of this is that we have spent 35 years at least destroying community in this country, uh, ripping away at what brings us together. Because this is a class of drugs that is the most isolating, seems to me. People who get addicted to them kind of turn inward and just don't hang out with anybody unless they're also people who are also using. It seems to me that it thrives also on our own uh, isolation. That's why I used uh, the swimming pool in Portsmouth, Ohio as the metaphor for what, what, what happens when you ignore community, when you exalt the private sector, when you exalt individualism to such a degree that really that's all that gets any support, moral or financial or what have you, support. And as time went on, I began to realize, dang, heroin is the drug of the symptom of our time, the, the poster drug of our, of our time, because we've spent so much time exalting the private sector, admiring wealthy people regardless of what they did with their money, did anything good for our communities. Our, our, our societies, our, our towns, and what have you. And meanwhile, we laugh at government. Oh, it's uh, b b wasteful. It's, uh, you know, uh, bumbling. It's uh, in the way. And really, the great engine of job creation is the private sector and, and a model of efficiency and all the... Look at this story. This story is a perfect example of the opposite. This story is the private sector visiting a scourge unlike any other on us. And the lonely people who were fighting it all along, back when no one cared, and it was happening very quietly, and they were doing so thanklessly, sometimes under threat of lawsuit, were all government employees. They were cops, they were prosecutors, they were coroners, uh, public health, jailers, ER docs, et cetera, et cetera. And so I began to understand that there was a, an enormity to the story, a massive breadth to the story, and that if you were writing about heroin, you were really writing about America and who we were and who we had become. As a physician, one of the, I thought, most poignant tales you tell is how specifically the drug companies kind of got traction in these physicians' offices in the area where these docs were helping to get people where, in communities where there were no jobs, there were no opportunities. Yeah. It was essentially a financial... Uh, sustaining thing, if you could get someone an SSI card, right? right? You, you'd speak By that, to that point, a lot of people had turned to disability when really their problem was economic pain, not physical pain. And they had turned to disability really at first, I think, for the, the SSI check, the SSEDI, workers' comp, whatever it happened to be. But the pills come along, and all of a sudden, the key element in that is not the check, it's the Medicaid insurance card that allows you to go to a doc get a long prescription, and increasingly with the pill mill docs setting up, that wasn't hard to do after a while, and then going by a pharmacist and getting a big prescription filled for a $3 copay. That was part of what was going on in these areas. But you know what struck me too, I have to say, obviously this thing starts in what is Appalachia, the Rust Belt, that whole area, southern Ohio, uh, uh, West Virginia, parts of western Pennsylvania, southern Indiana, et cetera. That whole area very roughly drawn is kind of ground zero with Columbus at the top. But by the time I was on to the story, it was not just there. It was 
Charlotte, North Carolina, banking center, gleaming skyline, two pro teams, about 15 country clubs. My God, they got so many country clubs in that town. And so the economic story was no longer the, I could not see the econ economics as being why, the explanatory factor. It had to be something else. Why Portsmouth, Ohio, and why Charlotte, North Carolina? Seems to me like there was something else there. There was, and that's where I began to fasten on the idea that this was about isolation and our own destruction of community, even in wealthy areas. These areas look great, but there's nobody out there in, you know, nobody walking around the streets. It's a very forbidding place where people have all the stuff and you would think that they have then all the, what they need to be happy, but you know, this is part of the story is that we as a culture began to believe and act upon the idea that you could buy your stuff enough to make you happy. And heroin, the final expression of a product that you can make to buy to make you happy. So, so in and hell, right? Same all. Exactly, right, yeah. and the same thing, precisely. I mean, what was striking to me is I got in fully, deeply into this story. I needed to read philosophers about how we achieve happiness. That was a bizarre concept. I never had done that before, but Victor Frankl had some fascinating things to say about meaning and finding meaning in life and how that is really, and along the way, you, you work towards something that you love, and along the way is a byproduct that we call happiness is created. And that meant a lot to me because that's basically the story of my life. Early on, I, my mom told me uh, when I was in high school, uh, you have to find a job that you love. Because if you don't, it's going to infect the other parts of your life and you'll be bitter and unhappy. And, so and I never forgot that. And I spent a lot of time finding out what job I truly loved and then going after it. And along the way, I could say that I have achieved a fulfillment that I find to be overwhelming and beautiful and that I describe as, as happiness. It, happiness and pleasure are two different things. And what we were after is, it seems to me, as a culture, pleasure, buying stuff, just buying more and more stuff. And I, I would see this as I would come back. My mom died years ago. My dad uh, had a lady friend, and we would go over to her house for Christmas and big mounds of toys for the kids that they would lose interest in with before the evening was up. So these were the kind of the themes that began to suggest themselves far beyond drugs. I thought one of the yeah. like darkest corners of the book, and maybe you could speak to it, is this sort of way that in some of these communities there developed this kind of closed circuit of Walmart shoplifting pill mill and a dollar per milligram street value of Oxy with your SSI card, right. you know, and it became this completely closed circuit economy. Well, this is what happened to Portsmouth, Ohio. Portsmouth, Ohio, for those that haven't read the book, is a town on the Ohio River, southern Ohio, was a great industrial st uh, story for a long time. It was... Um, shoes, right? I'm sorry, yeah, they made shoes. They uh, had a busy main street. They had 50,000 people. It was a working class town, but people didn't feel working class. They felt middle class. And at the center of the town was this enormous football field-sized swimming pool that was called Dreamland, that was almost like the center of life, the center of civic life, community life. You could leave your kids there. It was the babysitter. It was the place where you had your first kiss. The guy who owned it kept on expanding it because the money that he made, he didn't need it. Interesting idea for a CEO. I'd like to hear that a little bit more. 
He didn't need the money anymore because he owned a shoe factory, so he reinvested it, bought more land, and in time, the pool and the grounds just expanded, expanded, and it was this enormous center of town. Well, the town begins to fall apart, steel mill leaves, shoe factories close, half the population goes, and the swimming pool has to close in 1993. They dig it up, and it is today a massive strip mall with an O'Reilly's Auto Parts store as its anchor. And it seemed to me that this was exactly the idea of destroying community in the favor of the private sector. And along the way, what happened was in Portsmouth, Ohio, it's important to this story because it was where the pill mill was invented. Doctors began to figure out this business model of prescribing scads of drugs for people for cash. And their waiting rooms were never empty then. They were just long, long lines. And so many pills were prescribed an Oxycontin, what I call an Oxycontin economy emerged in which you could buy almost anything you needed for life itself with pills. They were currency by this point. You could buy T-bone steaks, you could buy chainsaws, you could buy school clothes for your kids, whatever. And uh, Walmart was the center of that because that's where a lot of the addicts went to steal. You could steal anything. Before on Main Street, you'd have had to go to store, to store, to store. In each place, there'd be some owner there who recognized you and was ready to fend you off. Now, it was Walmart with a 69-year-old greeter who had been paid nine bucks an hour who was not going to be messing with you, right? Steal whatever you want. I don't, I'm not going to just mess, you know? And, and so in time, this whole Oxycontin economy grew up around the destruction of what had held the town together. Jobs, people, Main Street, and I think in a kind of a more emotional or psychological way, the, 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 the swimming pool. And then in, in a whole generation, really an entire generation or two, was, grew addicted to these pills. It was just an awful plague that was very much like a plague. People describe it as you'd see one of your friends, you hadn't seen him for years, you were in high school together, hadn't seen him for years, and you know, before he was very responsible, and all of a sudden you'd see him, and he'd be putting a touch on you, asking for money, can I come over to the house, you know, that kind of thing. It was like all of a sudden, that person was taken. The walking dead, people would look like zombies walking down the Highway 52 to the Walmart to steal something, basically, to steal. I talked to many, many uh, addicts in town or recovering or current, actually, and they all describe outlandish schemes to steal from Walmart because you could, and there was no other place. It was one-stop shopping, well, it was one-stop shoplifting. The, this central thing that, you, I mean, you've articulated it really well here, and it's so powerful in the book, this notion that these places devastated by the collapsing kind of economy of, of the what we call the Rust Belt and these incredibly vulnerable people and then you introduce this toxin of these highly addictive you know, drugs and then predatory physicians, it's a terrible thing. But what really made people so vulnerable was this total collapse of community and this in deep kind of loneliness that the, that the opioid epidemic kind of feeds on and contributes to and enhances. And I Both. think, right. yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I think that's what's partly what's great about this event is this feels like a community event. This feels like we're actively trying to undo this. And can I say, uh, maybe to end, because we have about a minute to go, our friend tells us, um, that is what is so, um, makes me so optimistic in all this. It's that this is an opportunity to turn away from what made us ill, which is this isolation and this, this kind of focus on everything that's private 
and just living alone and with your screens and, and knowing everything about some guy in Chile or Miami, but nothing about the guy who lives across the street. Now you are seeing in county after county, I'm finding this as I travel around. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Brings it really gets me emotional sometimes to watch that in county after county, they are forming these groups task forces, alliances, whatever you want to call them. Adams County was one place I was just not long ago was visited, where you're bringing together these people who are different voices, right? And, um, you know, recovering addicts, doctors, uh, cops, uh, college presidents, uh, Kiwanis Club, Little League coach, clergy, et cetera, on and on and on, more, more than that, of course. And, and they're coming together and they're sharing, they're leveraging all those talents, all that energy, all that dynamism, those budgets, putting it all together. And of course this sounds obvious. People come to me, and this is a very weird feeling, Sam, what's the solution? And I'm like, I, <laughs> I, I'm a reporter, man, I got no idea, you know? <laughs> um, seriously, that's what I tell them. But I can tell you that there is no solution. There is no solution. There's a whole bunch of small solutions, a mosaic. Think of it as that, a mosaic of solutions. All need to be tried, all need to be tinkered with, maybe improved, maybe some discarded, you know. But the idea that this is somehow we've got some new thing we're going to invent that will solve this whole problem, that's how we got into this, right? One magic bullet. A pain pill for all pain, everybody's pain. This is how we exactly how we got into this, and it is, be, it would be so healthy if we never thought that way ever again, you know. And so I think this this up this. Um, thank you. I think this this epidemic is a golden. This way told, some of you may have seen. In a town as surreal as Washington, D.C., the most surreal event a couple weeks ago was me testifying in front of the U.S. Senate. I was like, it was a bizarre uh, idea. And I was like, I didn't know, didn't know how to, if you look at the tape, I didn't even know how to turn on the, the microphone. Like, everyone else was like pros at this. And I'm like, hello. And it's totally dead quiet. But, but I, so I told him, I said, this is an opportunity. It's a gift. Obviously, it's a catastrophe. It's a lacerating torment for families all across the country, but it's also, think of it, try to think of it as a gift. You're in public service, you've been working toward, I think this is why you got into public service. It's time to, I suggested a Marshall Plan of Recovery for a lot of these same communities that we're talking about, right? American recovery instead of European recovery. I suggested though, thinking in terms of all these different things that you in Washington will facilitate, you will not Im sometimes impose, but mostly Leave it up to these counties that are doing this, but just help them along. You know, give them the funding that they need. Give it to them over the long haul, not just one year. That's, the, that's I think, is crucial. So to me, that's, that's where the, we, I see it's a downer topic. It's a depressing thing to watch. But I think it's also a magnificent opportunity to correct some of the things and really make America great again <laughs> through this. Sam, thanks. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Dreamland in Denver was brought to you in part by the Colorado Hospital Association, the Colorado American College of Emergency Physicians, CarePoint Healthcare, Copic, Collective Medical Technologies, Swedish Medical Center, and the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences.